If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board while Julian Arbides. booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Uh, yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> it is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, all right, we got a jam-packed show, and I hope you hang around for it. Friday, we kicked off the uh, CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign, and we're down at Gore Park for that. And what a great day that turned out to be. It started kind of started kind of iffy. A lot of rain and uh, and not much action, but uh, about eh, four o'clock or so, five o'clock, uh, the rain started to subside a bit. And uh, the good news is, is the by the time we uh, lit the tree, uh, it was pretty dry down there. So well, I wouldn't say dry, but it wasn't raining. We'll leave it at that. And thanks to everybody that came down and uh, said hello. And again, the whole idea behind uh, the CHML uh, Blitz Day weekend and such is to introduce you to some of the great children's charities that benefit when you make a donation to the CHML Children's Fund. All the details on how you can do that on the website at uh, 900CHML.com. And of course, the easiest way on your phone, just text the word donate to 30333. You can make a 10 and $20 donation there. So um, yeah, really easy peasy and there you know whether it's toys uh, gently used clothing what have you uh we're you know we're literally doing everything we can to try to help uh, various children's charities out in all the details at 900 chml.com and uh, as you might remember we gave away uh tickets to the trans-siberian orchestra and they were i don't know if you remember but a dollar from every ticket sold went to uh, the children's fund. So they ended up pres- uh, presenting a check uh, to Rick and Olivia for like over 11,000 bucks. So that was great to see. And we thank them very much uh, for not only the donation, but the tickets as well to give away. So all in all, a great way to kick off the CHML children's fund uh, Christmas celebrations and the tree of hope campaign and such, of course, uh, up at Lime Ridge mall uh, as well over the weekend. So pretty cool time. And uh, it's off and running now. Uh, the next will be, three cent a liter day pioneer three cent a liter day that is coming up uh in the next week or so so uh keep an eye out for that when uh, every three cents from every liter of gas sold will go to the chml children's fund so any way you can help us help the kids uh would be greatly appreciated all right so uh and then i also wanted to talk about uh, after that on friday uh whip down to Bridgeworks, uh which is a uh, a cool facility uh right off caroline and which, you know, they used to make uh, spans for bridges and such. Very historic piece of Hamilton. We talked about it on Hammerhead Trivia. Anyway, Junkhouse was performing there on Friday night and uh, sold out show there. What a tremendous time that was. And uh, and it was funny because uh, Tom gets up on stage and the first thing he says, man, I can't believe how old you all, all look. And it's true. I'm sitting there and I'm saying to my wife, it's like, this looks like a Saturday night at the Legion. Um, so, uh, but anyway. 
anyway, just an incredible time uh, had by all. And uh, Bridgeworks, a very cool facility and, uh, and a great place to see a show. And uh, the band and Tom, were uh, they were on and having a great time. So it was fabulous to see uh, them all together again. And uh, I, I still love Tom as a front man in a rock and roll band. He still brings it uh, every night. And he was hilarious on stage. Some of the anecdotes that he told, some of the stories that he told over the course of uh, the night were pretty cool. So a uh, very neat event to be a part of. And the other thing was, I think half the people there were from his old neighborhood, uh, you know, because every person I talked to seemed to know him in some way or grew up with him or, you know, had a connection here or there. So I think it was very much uh, old home week when it came to uh, the Junk House show on Friday night. So uh, pretty cool weekend all in all, and you certainly can't argue with that. Coming up on the show, speaking of the CHML Children's Fund, Olivia Mackay is going to be joining us. She's the president of the Children's Fund. Talk about the opening weekend and uh, what has happened and where we're going moving forward with all of this. Uh, so that's coming up. Also, you know, we were talking about this during the pandemic, and it's kind of bizarre that it's still going on. Um, but we still have uh, drug shortages in certain situations right now. Uh, we talked to the Ontario Pharmacists Association and kind of get a update on that. All right. What else do we have? Did you watch The Golden Bachelor? Oh, man. So anyway, little did I know when I hit the uh, PBR thing. Holy smokes. Look at all, what are all these bachelor, golden bachelor things. So, um, you know, my uh, daughter's home from school. So there's no better family night than watching The Bachelor, especially when it's the finale. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, it was it was quite the um, it was quite the show. We're going to talk about that and why it is so appealing. With Bill Brio, TV critic, uh, coming up a little later on this hour. And sad news over the weekend. How many of us have seen April Wine? Put your hand up. Uh, Miles Goodwin, lead singer uh, for uh, April Wine, passing away over the weekend at age 75. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. Also, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, do you remember the Ontario Liberal Party? Remember them? McGinty and um, uh, Kathleen Wynne and all that. There's not many of them left now. Um, but they have uh, elected a new leader, and the new leader comes in the form of Bonnie Crombie, who is the mayor, or was, or will be soon, the former mayor of Mississauga. Uh, but it wasn't quite a slam dunk that everybody thought it would. As a matter of fact, it had to go to the third ballot uh, in order to claim a winner. So we'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. So we started Friday uh, with the uh, lighting of the CHML Children's uh, uh, Christmas Tree of Hope for the CHML Children's Fund, then, of course, up to Lime Ridge Mall. And uh, on Saturday, I put up my Christmas lights because um, I needed something to do after I raked the leaves. <laughs> okay, so I'm a little late. And then on on Sunday, I said to my wife, should, we, should I just go get the tree? Should I just go because we have a... We have a fight about this every year. Um, she likes the fake Martha Stewart tree that doesn't even look like a tree to me, to be honest. Um, looks like something you should hang noodles on. Anyway, I digress. And, um, we have a real tree because that's been the, that's been the agreement for the last 23 years, if you know what I mean. So, uh, uh Junior and I went out and, uh, and got a tree and, and brought it back. So, you know, we thought, well, this is, let's put on the Christmas music. So we started playing Christmas music and by the weekend it was all right. Enough of that. We're out. No more Christmas music. Put on the hits, please. 
it, it, you know, but for, for 24, 48 hours there, it was quite the Christmas, uh, feeling in the Thompson household. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk about something way more important, like the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope and the CHML Children's Fund, as I mentioned, getting underway this weekend. Olivia Mackay with us, president of the CHML Children's Fund and here now. Olivia, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well. Do you have all, do you have decorations up? Are you like uh, have you started? Because uh, post pandemic, it's like we're doing it earlier now. Well, I've always done it in the beginning of November, so the fake tree and all the decorations go up, and then we get a real tree. Yeah. And so the fake tree is the kids' tree, and then we just got the real tree, so we've got to cut it tonight and then put it in the base and let it rest. Like yeah. And then we'll do that tonight, and then I'll, we'll be fully ready for Christmas. The elves are out. They move around every day. Very. Oh, cute. yes, the elf on the shelf. Yeah, we have two. We have Peter and Miranda. Oh, very, so. very cool. <laughs> uh, my kids are uh, 21 and 16, and you should see where the elf on the shelf ends up. I, you know, it, it's getting ugly, if you know what I mean. Uh, but you've got the fake one as the kids' tree, and the yes. real one. Uh, see, we got it the reverse. the The fun tree is the I shouldn't say fun, but the real tree is more, you know, uh, like the fun tree. And the other one looks like, well, it's got things. It's got a butterfly on it. You don't have butterflies on Christmas trees, you know. It's it's yeah, the, it's the just wrong. The one with the broken or ornaments you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah you know the the elvis ornament with the head missing that sort of yeah. thing all right a big weekend to kick things off it started of course with the on friday night with the lighting of the chml christmas tree of hope and then went through uh at lime ridge and 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 a great big check donated with you and rick that's pretty cool what happened with the trans-siberian orchestra yeah, so uh, they we've been promoting that a dollar from every ticket sale from the matinee show was going to go to the Children's Fund. So they presented the check yesterday, and it was the highest um, amount of money they raised from all their shows so far of $11,553 was donated to the Children's Fund yesterday from the wow. Orchestra. That is great. And, you know, I mean, this is such a big draw every year. There's lots of people that every year this is on their uh, list of things that they have to do. So that's great to team up with them and be a part of it. Yeah, it's packed house. Great show. Like, recommend go next year if you have the chance. All right. So let's talk about uh, the CHML Tree of Hope and uh, the Children's Fund. And obviously, all the details on the website. But first, how do we donate? How can we help? Because there's so many different ways to do this. Yeah, you can text the word donate to 3033. You can go online at 900chml.com and donate through Canada Helps or PayPal Giving Fund. You can visit us during business hours, uh, drop off a check, or you can mail a check as well. All the information is at 900chml.com. As well as uh, money donations, we accept toy and food donations, and those can be dropped off at the station. Any local uh, fire... Uh, stations in and around Hamilton, the downtown BIA, as well are collecting. And the toy truck cutoff is December 17th. We will still collect the week of the 18th, but we're having the charities come in. We had about three last week. I have four scheduled this week. Kind of have to see how the uh, inventory is before I start inviting a bit more. But mm-hmm. I've got some toys in my mother's garage that I have to pick up today because yeah. my husband <laughs> went to a fire hall for me on Friday. So bringing those down <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> and then I'll see, we, you know, at Limerich, we got a ton of toys there, a lot of donations. I'm just kind of wrapping up Blitz weekend, and we're looking about over about five to $6,000 raised this weekend. And Excellent. a big help was from the uh, firefighters, local 288. They donated $2,500 as well to the Children's Fund, which is 
phenomenal all their time this weekend. We appreciate it so much. And, you know, what's cool about this is, and we we talked about this on Friday, that there's so many different ways you can contribute. But really what this is about is you or the all of the charities all working together. It's like, what do you need? We need this. Can we get that? And so on and so forth. So it's it's cool the way these uh, everybody works together to try to, you know, for the common cause. Yeah, and I'm just looking, I'm just going through allocations right now, emailing the board and saying, hey, guys, here's three more allocations that we need to get out this month. And the one I'm looking at looking uh, just needs some funding to purchase gift cards for youth. And I'm going to reach out to them and say, hey, I was dropped off probably about 20 gift cards from at the fire hall. Someone dropped mm. off and just to say, hey, I've got some gift cards to help you um, with your need. Um, and it's just, you know, it's everything like, you know, diapers, formula is a big need as well. You know, yeah. you think of the babies and they do need toys, but they also need that necessities of life. So that's the big thing that I put on uh, the toy truck, as well as those youth 12 to 18. And then another way I forgot that you could also donate is with the three cent pioneer, three yeah. cent a liter pioneer day on Wednesday, December 13th. All right, Wednesday, December 13th, that's Three Cent Pioneer uh, Leader Day, and three cents from every leader sold goes to the CHML Children's Fund. Again, all the details at 900chml.com on how you can help us help the kids. An easy way, simply text the word donate to 30333. It's off to a great start. Olivia, congratulations. Keep the momentum up. Good luck. Thank you. You might remember uh, during the global pandemic and such, there were supply shortages of... uh, of uh, everything, it seemed like, whether it was plywood or toilet paper, although that one might have been a little unjust and uh, unjustified, perhaps, and medications, of course. Uh, but why are we still experiencing drug shortages now? Is it a concern? Let's bring in Jen Belker, Vice President, Strategic Initiatives, Member Relations, Ontario Pharmacist Association, and here now. Jen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. So is how concerned are you of a shortage now? How how bad? How uh, what is the extent of the shortage we're experiencing right now? Pharmacists have been dealing with drug shortages and higher levels for quite some time now, definitely um, exacerbated by the pandemic. But um, over the last year or two, it really has escalated and we're oftentimes struggling to um, find some of those alternatives and get people medication um, in time for um, that sort of switch. And uh, really, you know, it's been consuming a lot of our team's time somewhere up to 20% of the day each day. You bring up a valid point, Jen. Many think that this is pandemic related, but uh, this goes back quite a while, even as back as far as 2017. Is that accurate? Probably even further than that, but 2017 was the first time we really had a national registry where manufacturers were required to report when things were in shortage. So we've been dealing with this for quite some time, but it's definitely gotten worse. There's a lot more than just the pandemic at play, Um, you know, things like global drug pricing issues, consolidation of different manufacturers. So when we had 10, now maybe we have two, and that puts more of our eggs into one or two baskets sourcing of ingredients from all the same places. So if there's contamination or recall, um, you know, it affects a lot of products. Uh, It's a really complicated problem overall. We're not the only country dealing with it, but uh, there are a lot of factors, but the pandemic definitely exacerbated it. 
uh, as it did in, in many situations. Uh, if there were issues prior to it, it certainly just uh, made it that much worse. What do we have to do to fix this? Because, um, you know, as you said, there are other countries that are dealing with it, but we seem to have this consistent problem with it. So what do we need to do as a country to guarantee we have a, a safe supply of all of this? Uh, nationally, I think we need some leadership looking at the um, security of our drug supply chain, things like domestic manufacturing and really, you know, how how we prioritize and purchase medications for our, our Canadian population. And then more locally, we need to enable pharmacists um, to be able to manage these more independently. So here in Ontario, um, unlike in other areas of the country, pharmacists aren't able to independently manage those drug shortages and switch where necessary. We have to fax out to a prescriber and wait for a prescription in return. Uh, Whereas in other provinces, the pharmacist could make that decision and simply notify the prescriber of what was done. So is this this something that can be fixed quick with some procedural changes or is this something that's going to take a long time to correct? Um, The scope piece for pharmacists that would allow us to manage them more independently would need to be a regulatory piece. So it would still take time. Um, And then that leadership at the Canadian level around how how we approach the security of the supply chain is also one of those long-term challenges. So I don't think, unfortunately, we're going to see any quick fixes in this area. Uh, We remember during the uh, global pandemic, the rush for vaccine and such, and then uh, the Discovery Canada didn't produce this. Uh, Are you feeling comfortable that we've learned anything from some of these issues? I think there's been a lot of lessons around the vaccine um, procurement, as well as the the challenge of not having um, enough domestic manufacturing capability with some of the other products that have been really significant shortages. So I think, you know, that has um, contributed a lot of valuable information to that process and has got the attention um, of the the federal government and a lot of the stakeholders that have the ability to uh, to make some change on this front. Uh, is it all related in the sense that we just need to be producing more here? It, it's, it- that's part of the issue. I think, you know, too, we have um, global pricing pieces. So even when we are purchasing overseas, Canada needs to be an attractive market. And we want low drug prices for our, our citizens, but we also don't want to be a low priority country when it comes to the viability of the market. We want that domestic manufacturing. It also creates jobs and opportunity here. Um, but once again, it needs to be uh, to make sense from, um, you know, the uh, manufacturer's perspective to come to Canada and to put those jobs here. And what are we um, in most of, of short supply? We remember before it was kids medications um, and cold and flu, that sort of thing. Is it still the same? So um, we're we're in much better shape with the kids' medications, fortunately, going into this fall season. But the you know the talk of the hour is Ozempic, one of the medications used to manage uh, right. diabetes, and has also been used uh, off label for weight loss, and uh, that has created uh, a lot of other shortages in that group of medications. And mm. patients are struggling to uh, to get that, and that's really the the biggest one that we've seen um, in terms of its impact lately um, that we're currently dealing with. Is that just an example of marketing gone awry? I mean, you know, there's people that obviously need these, this for diabetes and then, you know, a, a spinoff is that it reduces uh, weight and such. Are people using it for the wrong things or inappropriately? 
There could be examples of that, but I think, you know, because it is a decision by your physician, nurse practitioner, mm. like that prescriber to give you a prescription yeah. for it. Um, I wouldn't say that there's a lot of inappropriate use because reducing your weight has a lot yeah. of health benefits for people who are overweight or obese, regardless of whether you're not, you're diabetic or not. I think that the challenge here is that the product is actually a victim of its own success. It works quite well for both diabetes and weight reduction in many people. It's not for everyone, but it does work quite well and have other health benefits on the cardiovascular system and um, and what have you. So, it, you know, it is quite a good drug for a large number of people. And I think the anticipated success and utilization of it um, wasn't necessarily um, able to be anticipated. And so it's a victim of, you know, that that higher utilization, but um, for many good and valid reasons as well. Uh, what about other drugs? Because uh, this is pretty specific uh, in relation to the fall season, uh, the cold and flu meds, any of that. Where else could we see sh- uh, shortages? There are a lot of different ones. When we think about some of the ones that have the biggest impact, we call them tier three shortages. And that means basically that there's no other therapeutic alternative that could be used to replace it. So we think about products like nitroglycerin sprays, which are used to help avert a heart attack if you start feeling chest pain. Um, People who have known that um, they use this product to help um, open up their blood vessels and protect their heart. So when we think about products like that, you know, chemotherapy agents, uh, a lot of the other um, products that really have no other available alternative, those are really concerning um, and definitely, um, you know, much more of a challenge to manage than if we can just switch you blood pressure medications temporarily until yours is back in stock. Are we getting better at managing this sort of thing or is it how high, how high a concern is this for you? Shortages. Well, given the workload that it's placed on um, pharmacy teams and on prescribers and having to respond to an action, um, you know, our requests for changes in therapy, uh, we, we haven't made enough progress here, at least in Ontario, um, in terms of, of managing it. And we've got more to do. Um, but ultimately, you know, it is a real challenge at a time where um, our pharmacy teams are doing more than ever to take care of our communities. And um, this lack of access to the medications we need is contributing significantly to an additional workload. And obviously we're just going to see pharmacists do more, I'm guessing, correct? In the future? That's our hope. We can there's a lot of our skill set and education that we can use to take care of our patients and work within those teams in a way that creates access and still in a really safe and effective way. So we're we're hopeful to be able to use more of our education to take care of the people that uh, we see day in and day out. Jen Belker with us, Vice President, Strategic Initiatives, Member Relations, Ontario Pharmacist Association on drug shortages in the country. Jen, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. My wife's watching this show, and this was a few weeks ago, several weeks ago or whatever. And um, and it's like one of those Bachelor-type shows, and it's like an old guy. Or as my wife says, no, he's closer to your age than mine. All right. So, uh, and it's, it's called the golden bachelor. So, uh, I'm watching this and, 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 and then I said, I got to stop. I can't watch this anymore. I'm not watching this. I refuse to watch this. I'm running away. Uh, after, of course, I sat there for 20 minutes and was somehow mesmerized with this. I don't know why. Um, so, uh, and, and anyway, as I'm looking to watch, uh, uh, an F1 race or something that was recorded, I see like, there's all these golden bachelors, like who the hell, who set up there to record golden bachelor? Um, you know, either my wife or my daughter, I'm not sure who's done it here. And like, there they all are. Which one do you want to watch? Pick your, uh, pick your poison.
So anyway, uh, I couldn't bring myself to watching other uh, any more than the 20 minutes that I saw um, because, you know, I don't know, I, maybe I was jealous. <laughs> this guy's older than me, looks better, and is getting more. I don't know. Uh, it just seemed very odd. So then last night, the finale thing's on. And, you know, I watch Jimmy Kimmel every so often. So he and he's like, it's his network. So he's always hammering and plugging the heck out of these shows. Uh, and I think his aunt was on the, the the first Golden Bachelor. I think she she got the boot right away. Uh, she couldn't stay awake, so which you know, I think was probably a lot of our uh, uh, our situations over the course of the show. But anyway, uh, so last night they, I don't know, uh, crown a winner. What do you do? And while this guy's on TV, he he, you know, just like the normal Bachelor, he goes through and he process of elimination he gets down to uh you know the last one or two or three or what have you and you know when you're watching young people they're kind of you know filled with p and v and they're you know doing their thing and rah, 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 strutting their chests and rah, 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 and all that sort of thing but you know when you're watching old people looking at it it's kind of i don't know is it me it's just kind of different it's weird and then last night there was uh you know they bring on the runner-up which, you know, I, I'm thinking like that was just one of the most uncomfortable, most awkward moments I think I've ever seen in television uh, is, you know, um, some old guy just getting uh, lambasted because uh, I don't know, he picked the wrong one. Like, yeah, you know, like somebody, how many are there? 19, 20? What? There's 52. I don't know how many contestants there are, but only one's going to win. So, uh, you know, you can't lay yourself out there on TV. And let's be honest, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of this is done on the editing room floor as opposed to what actually happens in these people's lives. But uh, I, I thought it was very uncomfortable towards the end when when uh, and, and again, I didn't watch the whole thing. I was kind of in and out and and I was barbecuing. <laughs> That's what it was. I was barbecuing. That was my out. And, and and I just felt so horrible for this woman that got, you know, jilted in the last minute because she thought she was going to be the one. She thought she was going to. And, you know, it, it's like I'm it's like I'm listening to these, um, you know, high school kids, except they're all senior citizens. So I, I thought it was kind of very bizarre. And then at the end of the day, um, uh, he announces that he's going to actually uh <laughs> He's going to actually marry the woman who won the contest or the game show. I'm not sure how work, how it all works. But I, I thought it was quite funny when my son turns to me and said, so does he have to marry her now? Like, is that the deal? He's got to marry. It's like, no, it's TV. It's, it's all fixed. It's all, it's all staged in some way. And to shed some light on all of this, Bill Brio is with us, TV critic and author, and is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, hanging in there. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, but I, you know, I had to endure uh, the last episode of The Golden Bachelor. And uh, your thoughts on, on why this show is popular as it is? Well, most people who watch television like broadcast network TV are older. So mm. finally, somebody to root for. I mean, you know, if you're if you're 60, you want to see somebody involved in these shows who's uh, a 60 plus. Uh, you know, you've watched the 25 year olds for 15 years or whatever. And OK, that's fun. But I think it's just the fascination of seeing some of the viewers age uh, going through the process of uh, this kind of gimmicky dating thing. 
I, you know, Bill, I, I sort of felt uncomfortable when last night they had like the runner-up on. So she's kind of like the first loser, the one that didn't get picked who thought she was. I thought, oh, my God, this is, you know, I thought she was going to hit the guy. <laughs> uh, you know, that's the thing. The, no one ever gets tired of watching other people being humiliated on television. <laughs> so that's part, that's part of the fun, Scott, I'm afraid. But I think, you know, we'll probably see this guy back in a year on the uh, divorce version of this. And then by that point, he'll be the silver divorcer because his fortunes will have devalued from gold. And my daughter was telling me, and I don't know if there's any truth to this, Bill, maybe you can help with us, that if you were one of the other, I guess, bachelorettes up to this point, that you become the new bachelor and they may do it again with her being uh, in the driver's seat. Absolutely. She's exactly right. Because, yeah, you, that's, they do this on purpose. The viewers get invested in the people. They're sympathetic when they lose, and they root for them the next time. And that's why there's been, like, 35 versions of this show so far. And what were uh, – did The Golden Bachelor do any better? Did it hold its own? How did it do compared to the others? You know what? It's, it's, I was surprised at this, and I only know for, in terms of Canada – um, that it didn't really do that well. Like it was, I thought, I believe it's on uh, City here. And, uh, you know, it wasn't really one of their very top-rated shows. So um, that's the risk, too, is that if you're going to put on a show that's going to maybe appeal to older viewers, a lot of the younger ones who generally watch The Bachelor tune out. Uh, yeah, do kids look at this and go, ooh, it's like listening to my parents talk about sex. It's it's like when all of us, the parents who joined Facebook, the kids got off Facebook. You know? I think <laughs> you're right, Scott. That's what happened. Oh, man. Bill Brio is with us, TV critic and author, talking about The Golden Bachelor uh, and gets engaged in the process. Uh, what? How much of this is scripted? How much of it is real, Bill? Well, that's the age-old question. I mean, I think that uh, a lot of it is scripted. When you hear the sound bites and, you know, they're – very cliche half the time. Yeah. Uh, so I think that people struggle to say something and they go, well, just read this. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's like when you used to see Bob Hope on SCTV and it, it'd be, I think that's what happened. All right. Bill Brio with his TV critic and author talking about the golden bachelor as always, Bill, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Miles Goodwin, uh, former singer with April Wine, has passed away at the age of 75 to talk about uh, their run in at a time in Canadian music when it was pretty difficult. Lou Mol- uh, Molinero is with us, instructor at Durham College and the Harris Institute for Music, former proprietor of This Ain't Hollywood. Lou is with us now. Lou, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I hope you're well as well. Thanks for having me on. Another sad day, uh, Lou. We lose another one. This one in the in the form of Miles Goodwin. Talk a little bit about this band uh, in a t- in a time when it was t- a tough hauling for a Canadian band. They had a good string of hits. It was tough hauling, uh, but it was also very competitive. When you think about bands like Bachman Turner Overdrive, The Guess mm. Who, Chilliwack, uh, it was a very competitive market for only a small piece of the pie. And this is before Rush or Max Webster or Triumph. Uh, a foot in cold water were uh, pretty prominent back then. But April Wine, to me, uh, definitely represented 
Canadian rock the best out of the whole decade of the 70s. And I'm including the Guess Who in that. The Guess Who, by about 74, 75, kind of phased out. But uh, April Wine were just getting stronger and better. And um, Miles Goodwin was the reason for that, because he was just getting better as a songwriter. He had a, a really signature voice that uh, lent itself very well to whether it was a rock ballad, a heavy rock, straight ahead rock and roll song, or a pop song. They were all of the above. And, uh, you know, back then, many Canadian acts, the key was trying to get accepted in the U.S. How did they fare there? Well, once video kicked in at the turn of the, you know, like 1980, and uh, video was lending itself pretty well to music, um, April Wine were starting to get some notoriety. Uh, a lot of uh, American markets were picking up on uh, April Wine as kind of like a quote-unquote new band, even though they had been together mm. for about 10 or 11 years at that time. But the cool thing about April Wine was even though while uh, they were getting uh, video play for songs like Signs of the Gypsy Queen, uh, a lot of their music were starting to appear on soundtracks on popular uh American movies. So they were starting to kind of cut their way through, but unfortunately not enough to really uh, break the market as they should have. Uh, and even, and I'm speaking even internationally because April Wine, when you listen to them, you know, they, they should have been a, a, a true international band, uh, mm. not just a Canadian gem. Why don't you think they were Lou? Well, I think it's just the fact that like a lot of Canadian bands, they're just too Canadian. Uh, there's yeah. something about, you know, the smell of, uh, uh, maple syrup and rock and roll in Canada <laughs> that sometimes like doesn't lend itself too well to other uh, markets. And uh, the same could be applicable to, say, Max Webster, Teenage Head, Blue mm. Rodeo. Uh, they're megastars in Canada, but for some reason, it's I, I, they're maybe just Canadiana. And, and I mean that almost as a compliment, because it's so sad that a lot of these international markets have missed out on great bands like uh, April Wine, especially because of Miles Goodwin's uh, songwriting. And sort of a rebirth during the era of classic rock radio. You know, they're a staple. For me growing up, uh, I grew up on the K-Tel hits uh, compilations mm. when I was a kid. And <laughs> April Wine was a CanCon necessity. And yeah. all those April Wine songs on those K-Tel albums were great. And that's how I became a, a, a huge April Wine fan because, uh, you know, I was introduced to them as a kid um, and those songs stood out. And there was other songs from other big bands internationally on those compilations. But, you know, Canadian born April Wine, uh, you know, ran with the cup. And Miles Goodwin recently said that uh, the induction into the uh, Singer Songwriter Hall of Fame, his greatest achievement for his writing. And I think that shows his true colors as to why he really um, got involved uh, in music for almost five decades. And I know the band is still playing uh, without Miles, or they were uh, prior to Miles passing away. And, you know, that's kind of a touchy thing. But I think at the end of the day, people just want to hear these songs played live with some sort of recognition or connection to the band mm -hmm. to make it legitimate. And, you know, he'll surely be missed, but, you know, his music's going to go on forever. What about younger musicians now that the Canadian music industry has a bit of heritage to it? Uh, do you think they influenced many? So I know that people like Luke Bentham of the Dirty Nil has his finger on the pulse when it comes to a lot of uh, older bands. Like Luke is pretty savvy and uh, he's uh, 
very open-minded. And I think there's a lot of Canadian bands similar to the Dirty Mill who have personnel that, you know, pick up a lot of their records. And one of the things is that uh, it's almost kind of like a happy accident, but they inherit a lot of these records from their parents or from, um, you know, family members that got rid of their vinyl or their CDs. And, um, you know, it's these younger musicians now that are learning about this Canadian music and it's new music to them if they've never been really, you know, uh, if they're not used to it. Interesting piece by Alan Cross today uh, that came out and talked about something completely different where there doesn't seem to be genres of music anymore because as he asked students, and you're probably in the same situation, uh, they listen to everything, stuff that their parents would have listened to, uh, you know, from the days of Buddy Holly all the way to whatever is current today. It's a good thing and a bad thing. I think there's, you know, something to be said about supporting, like, uh, selfishly speaking, you know, you you want... um, a genre like rock and roll to be separate, or if you're into yeah. funk, you want it to be separate just because you want to build that community uh, and you want something to be special without being watered down. And I think that's the only problem with it. It's great that people are so open-minded uh, to accept music for what it is. But I also feel that, you know, when you try to build community around a fan base, um, you know, you've got to be part of the Kiss Army because you love Kiss. I hear you. Well said. Lou Molinero with us, instructor, Durham College and the Harris Institute for Music. And, of course, former proprietor at This Ain't Hollywood, talking about the life and times of Miles Goodwin. Lou, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, Bonnie Crombie, who is or was or will be shortly the former mayor of Mississauga, has won the job of leading the provincial liberal party into the next election. Uh, Results counted at a convention over the uh, weekend, and Bonnie Crombie has come out on top. What does that mean for the liberal party moving forward? Let's bring in Sabrina Nanji, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer, and here now. Sabrina, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. So I understand, Sabrina, you were at uh, at the convention. What was the buzz like there? What was what was it like? Yeah, I guess it was a longer day than we were expecting. Bonnie Crombie's camp had been talking a big game and suggesting that they would win this on the first ballot. Uh, you know, it was one member, one vote ranked ballot at, uh, for the first time for the Ontario Liberals. And so we kind of maybe thought we would be out of there in a couple of hours, but it took a little longer than that. Uh, but, uh, you know, and took up some of our Saturday, but, uh, at the end it, it turned out to be quite a nail biter. I'll say, you know, she won in on the third ballot. Nate Erskine Smith certainly gave her a run for her money. Um, but, but she, she came out on top at the end of it. I, I've been to a few of these conventions. Um, and I will say the vibe was a bit more tense than we're used to. I mean, this is kind of like a family reunion at the end of the day, they're all liberals hmm. and usually you get different factions, you know, cheering on their candidate, waving signs, chanting, you know, Bonnie or Nate. And we did get a little bit of that, uh, but it wasn't really more so towards the end that I think a lot of people, especially in Bonnie Crombie's camp, you know, sighed with relief uh, and, and, and that she won it. I think another thing that stood out to me was the lack of turnout, you know, just less than a quarter of the over 100,000 members who could vote. So I think, you know, Bonnie's really got her work cut out for her now, not only trying to unite the the liberals under her banner, but also to 
present herself and introduce herself to the rest of Ontario. Uh, why do you think the lower uh, turnout? Do you think that the candidates just didn't grab Liberals' attention, including Bonnie Crombie? I mean, that's certainly what the opposition critics are saying. They're saying, you know, this is signs of a divided party that no one's really excited about, you know, what ended up being four candidates. Um, but, you know, if you talk to liberals, I think there were a couple of factors at play here. I mean, I will note that close to 23,000 voters is the most that they've ever had voting in one of their liberal leadership races. Again, you know, this was the a new race and one member, one vote. So there were more ballots up for grabs, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But I've also been hearing that it was sort of a complicated process that wasn't communicated quite clearly to some people. I know some folks thought that they could vote anywhere, that they could vote on both Saturday and Sunday. The voting happened the weekend before the convention. And so I think that, you know, there might have been some growing pains and some lessons learned for the liberals when it comes to engagement. But at the end of the day, you know, a, a number of them showed up and they're, I guess, like it or, or hate it. They've, they've got Bonnie Crombie leading them now. Um, most couldn't ID the other candidates and, and many who thought that Bonnie Crombie was a slam dunk because of her um, uh, popularity and the fact that she is well known. Uh, how did the others make such a run? I mean, you're you're right. You know, Bonnie Crombie had a lot of things going for her. I think name recognition, the fact that she rattles Doug Ford. She's a very good fundraiser. You know, she blew the rest of the candidates out of the water. Um, and I think that it was a particularly vicious contest, if, if I can put it that way. And I think maybe that spoke to the vibe in, in the room on Saturday. Uh, you know, two of the candidates, Nader Skin-Smith and Yasser Nakvi, who are both MPs uh, over on Parliament Hill, they kind of got to this point where, you know, they were saying things that they couldn't really take back. You know, they certainly attacked Bonnie Crombie by calling her Doug Ford light. They're not happy that she wants to take the party toward the center. Um, and, and so I do think that, you know, they they did definitely raise their profile uh, within liberal circles. But I, I'm not sure if that really resonated, you know, to the to the wider public and, and the rest of Ontario. Um, speaking again about a divided party, many said that she was going to, or probably just with her, her, her recognition, bring the party back to left of center, which many have thought it has gone too far to the extreme left. Is there definite, is there a definite divide within the party about how extreme left they go? I mean, we're seeing that with the federal liberals, uh, as well. Is there a call to bring the party back to left of center? Yeah, I think that's a question a lot of liberals have been asking themselves these days is like, what do we stand for? And I think that, you know, the the lack of that is a part of the problem that they've had in the last two elections, right? Like they've been in the penalty box for a lot of reasons, but uh, I, I think, you know, not having a clear definition um, of, of what they're all about, it, it was something that, you know, Ontarians noticed. And, and Bonnie Crombie initially sort of stumbled out of the gate saying that she wanted to bring the party towards the center right. And that rubbed some people the wrong way. She's since walked it back, but she is a centrist. She's more fiscally conservative, you know, small C there. Uh, but she says she wants to make it a big tent. And I think that She's this is why I say she's got her work cut out for her sort of uniting the party, because there were a lot of supporters on Nate Erskine Smith's side. And Nate was unapologetically like, we're going left. This We've got to be more progressive. This is where the party goes. And so, you know, Bonnie's got a lot of time now to 
speak to the party, speak to Ontarians, figure out, you know, what they're going to be presenting to the province in 2026. I think some new Democrats in particular, because it's not just the conservatives she's going up against. It's also the NDP that she's going to be fighting for votes and seats. And I think a lot of new Democrats are liking the fact that Bonnie is the leader. They've called her Doug Ford light. They've compared her to the premier and they're hoping to pick up some of those supporters that let's call them more left leaning supporters that would otherwise go to the liberals. I think some of those folks might now be looking at the NDP or even the Greens. Do you think that some of uh, Bonnie Crombie's left of center comments may come back to haunt her? She's been chatted, uh, you know, been quoted as, you know, being supportive of nibbling into the green pelt where it where she sees fit and such. Do you think some of that will come back to haunt her? I think certainly like her critics, especially in in the NDP, will be using those clips and saying, you know, this is the real Bonnie Crombie. Uh, Bonnie Bonnie Crombie has since you know walked back those statements uh, and says she's all about protecting the the green belt, for instance. But you can't really put that back in Pandora's box. I think mm-hmm. also having her fellow liberals, but also leadership rivals, Yasser Nakvi and Nader Smith attacking her on it very openly is going to absolutely be used and capitalized on by her critics. Uh, do you think do you think federal politics influences the brand much here? Because we've certainly seen uh, federally that the federal liberals and the federal MDP have teamed up. Do you think that they're going to both those parties provincially are going to have a hard time separating themselves? Yeah, it's interesting. Ontario is this unique province that tends, I guess, generally speaking, to vote the opposite uh, parties Mm -hmm. in. So if we've got conservatives at Queen's Park, Ontario tends to vote liberal federally and vice versa. And I think that what we're seeing in the polls at the federal level that the Liberals and, and Trudeau have been tanking while, you know, Polyev and, and the Conservatives are are doing well. I think that if you see that as, you know, Ontario always votes in opposites, that I think that might be a bit worrying for Doug Ford. There is no love lost between the Conservatives at Queen's Park and the Conservatives over on the Hill. They, they have disagreed with a lot of things. I mean, Ford and Trudeau have really been playing nice with each other. I'm just thinking about all the electric vehicle uh, battery plant announcements they've been making. And so it will be interesting. I think I'll be watching to see how Trudeau and Bonnie Crombie sort of play off of each other in, you know, with all that as the backdrop. Sabrina Nanji with us, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer, Bonnie Crombie, the new leader of the provincial liberals. Sabrina, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. We remember uh, only a few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, people were outraged to find out that uh, Paul Bernardo, serial killer, had been transferred from a maximum security prison to a medium uh, security prison. And way back when we were talking to Tim Danson, lawyer for the Mahaffey and French families, um, when when Bernardo was being sentenced and, and he was uh, deemed a dangerous offender, so the families, the Mahaffey and the French families, wouldn't have to go through uh, this nightmare time and time again, whether it's parole or a prison transfer or what have you. And now, uh, obviously, years later, uh, recently having to relive it all again. Let's bring in Tim Danson, lawyer for the Mahaffey and French families in here now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Tim, I remember when we talked way back when, when all of this was, was uh, you know, a, a story that literally gripped the nation, and you were working so hard to have this man uh, declared a dangerous offender, so this type of stuff wouldn't have happened, but did you ever imagine a prison transfer? 
No, we, we not only did we never anticipate a, a, a prison uh, transfer from maximum security to medium security, but that they did it without any notice to the families. Um, so they were completely blindsided by it, learned from it uh, really through the media, and it was very, very difficult for them. But what's what you know, I, I actually today I, I testified before the Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security to address you know this issue. And and one of the the, the points that we made, uh, I made on behalf of the families, is that even if Corrections Canada followed the protocol, which I have real issues with as to whether they did or they didn't, the fact of the matter is, is that the Prime Minister of Canada and the and the minister responsible, and mm. I'm sure other political leaders. Uh, uh, stated loudly and clearly that they found the the decision to be shocking and incomprehensible. So my view is is that if you find it shocking and incomprehensible, change the law. I don't want to get into a debate as to whether yeah. Corrections Canada did it right or did it wrong, and I don't think they did it right at all, and I don't even think they followed their own criteria or their interpretation of it. We just can't allow shocking and incomprehensible laws to remain. And what I thought was also troubling was that at the time of the transfer, so he's now 30, you know, about 30 years in jail, uh, the parole board, two separate uh, parole board panels held and found on the evidence that Paul Bernardo had no remorse, no empathy, no insight, and he wasn't treated. And then we reward him with a transfer to medium security. Um, you know, that's just not acceptable. And one of the points that we were emphasizing for someone like Paul Bernardo, and that deserves emphasis, we're not talking about the majority of offenders who are on fixed sentences. We're talking about Canada's most dangerous offenders. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis has to be on punishment. And he he needs to spend the rest of his natural life in a, in a maximum federal penitentiary. End of story. <laughs> Um, you did so much way back when to try to protect the families from all of this, even with, with what has happened as him being deemed a dangerous offender and now the prison transfer. Has anything changed to make life easier for the victims' families who have to cope with this time in and in, 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 in the future? No, and this is something that we're also been advocating for, uh, you know, more comprehensive legislative change which is um, it, it's really unfair in these circumstances that the families have to, on average, go through this every two years, that Paul Bernardo and similarly situated offenders uh, you know, are entitled to a parole hearing every two years. And uh, you know, as Donna French said in one of her victim impact statements, no sooner is the pen, is the ink dry on, on one victim impact statement that I got to get mm. ready for the next one. Mm. So it's, you know, my view is that the law should be changed that people like Paul Bernardo, yes, they're entitled to a parole hearing, but after their first parole hearing, and given the findings of the parole board, which I just said, no remorse, no insight, no empathy, not capable of being treated, that instead of putting the families through this every two years, I think it should be extended to seven years. And if for some reason there's a medical break breakthrough or there's something dramatic that occurs, the offender can apply to the parole board to uh, have an earlier parole hearing. But I think as a matter of law, the family should not be put through this every two years. I mean, you know, Bernardo's going to have many, many, many parole hearings. To put the family through this every two years is torture yeah. for them. And I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's just. 
And we're also hearing that many criminals, although maybe not to the extent or dangerous, dangerous offenders like Paul Bernardo, are moved the same way. And I remember hearing way back when that, uh, you know, one official saying, well, you know, this is better suited for him. There's more people like him in this prison. Is there any is there anything accurate about that? Is there anything valid there? Well, in my view, no, because what this does is distort and sanitizes the brutality of his crimes, hmm. where punishment should be first and foremost uh, uh, the principle. Uh, even the the trial judge, one of the most experienced and respected uh, judges in the country, then Associate Chief Justice Lesage, then our Chief Justice, made it clear that uh, the, uh, that 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 Paul Bernardo should spend the rest of his natural life in jail, and that the chances of of uh, any kind of rehabilitation are remote in the extreme. Those are his words, not mine. And so to give him, uh, you know, they, they talk about, and they did this in the report, justifying the transfer, that the, that the perimeter security is the same between uh, maximum security and, and, and medium security. We're, our concern is not Paul Bernardo escaping from a federal penitentiary. Our, our, our issue is, is that he should be facing the full force of the law in terms of maximum punishment, given what he did. And so um, to give him more uh, rights and privileges, which you absolutely have inside a, um, a medium security facility, and to say that he's now, you know, there's more treatment programs for a person that the medical evidence at the time of the mm. trial, the dangerous offender application, and twice before the parole board, is that he's not treatable. So why are we offering him, giving him benefits of things that aren't even valuable? And and I'm, my concern is is that they're taking, uh, uh, you know, they're 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 not emphasizing the punishment side of sentencing principle, which is the number one principle for sentencing for people like this. That's the law. And the French and Mojave families will have to go through this again, won't they? Yeah, they will. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, he, he was originally having his parole hearing in November, just, and then he moved it to February. Uh, so now, you know, we've been getting the families ready for that. And then just last week, we learned that they're putting it off to November. And, you know, what they don't hmm. get is every time, you know, they tell us, you got to get ready for November, that has a real traumatic impact on the victims, getting ready for the victim impact statements and takes them back to day one. And then they said, oh, never mind, he's going to do it in February. Then February, never mind, mm. do it next November. The, 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 you know, they, they should not have these rights. And that's why I think there should be a hard line that these guys, once they've had their first parole hearing, next one, seven years, if there's some breakthrough, you can apply to the parole board to move it up. But otherwise, this is just cruel to the families in my, my respectful view. Tim Danson with his lawyer for the Mahaffey and French families on uh, Paul Bernardo being moved to a medium security prison. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've heard lots of chatter about the beer store of late and that the Ontario government is not going to renew its contract. Uh, coming up uh, the end of this year. What does that mean for the future? Uh, certainly, there's been lots of speculation. Let's bring in Dan Malik, Associate Professor, Department of Health Sciences and Director for the Center of Canadian Studies at Brock University. And here now, Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I'm uh, happy to be here, Scott. I hope you're well as well. So, Dan, what is exactly going to change at the end of this year? Why are thing, Why will things be different for the beer store? 
Well, I mean, there's it, it looks like uh, the Ford government is ready to tear up the agreement that was inked, what, about eight years ago now, seven years ago. Uh, I think Kathleen Wynne um, had the new agreement that we got um, beer and wine in supermarkets. Remember that one? And yeah. it has, a, I think, a two or a three-year sunset clause on it. So if they needed to cancel it, they had to let the beer store um know now so the story is and it's still sort of speculation and it's lots of people who aren't supposed to talk but they talk anyway that um that they're going to end this um we're not sure what the uh, other other side of this uh will be in other words what what will replace it um because as you remember when doug ford came into power he talked about you know beer in corner stores and things like that so there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to be next. So um, uh, uh, the the traditional deal will not be signed, but we really don't know what the new one entails. Uh, y- y- yeah. if, if the deal isn't signed this time out, where does that leave the beer store? Other people will then be allowed to distribute it? Yeah, that's the, the challenge. I mean, the beer store as an entity uh, is as old as the liquor control board, um, yeah. or well, nearly as old, right? So it came in after uh, prohibition. And my understanding from my reading of this is that it basically because beer is so bulky and the stores were put in the centers of town, it didn't make sense to have uh, the liquor store manage all the beer. So the beer stores sort of had this cooperative distribution center and it was actually a time when you could get it delivered to your house. Um, So that was back when we had a lot of breweries and then over time, the big three kind of took over um, the system. So when Wynn renegotiated this arrangement, uh, it was to allow new like to allow craft breweries uh, shelf access and it was it was in the face of a lot of smaller craft breweries saying we do not have the market visibility that the big three have because of this monopoly so the next step then would could be you dismantle the beer store and I guess the the norm without any other arrangement, uh, it would be in the supermarkets that already have the licenses. Because remember, you still have to be licensed to sell beer, right. or um, or go back to the liquor store. But my uh, the, the 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 other option can be that more stores are going to, or more retail outlets are going to be allowed to sell beer. Right. Uh, whether it's at every corner store, like when we go across the river to New York State, we see this sort of thing. You can go to the gas station and there's beer in the, the fridges there and stuff like that. Or if it's going to be another sort of scramble for the retail license for more supermarkets and more other places, like say the big box stores and stuff like that is still yet to be seen. And you know there's lots of lobbying going on behind the scenes right now. As you mentioned, uh, Dan, way back when this was an association owned by the brewers and then eventually condensed to the big three. Now none of those big three are even Canadian owned anymore. How much of that plays into this discussion that the beer store is not Canadian anymore? I don't, it's, it's, I don't know if it's anything happening at the, at the level of the, um, I don't know what's going on in the, in the government discussions about this. It was certainly something that the craft brewers were pushing against back when they were saying, hey, the beer store isn't giving us um, right. our access. Um, but then it 
also the part of the concession was that um, the boards of the the um, beer store would include uh, members from craft brewers. So even though it was still owned by the big three, and Molson Coors is kind of one of these weird ones where it's sort of owned, it's sort of Canadian and sort of not, but it's easy to see. You know, Coors is a bigger company than Molson, um, but then Sapporo, which owns Sleeman's and and Labatt's, which is AB InBev. Um, those the, those would still yeah they would still have the the vast um, the the largest percentage of I guess votes or or share of the company. Um, but I don't think that the I, I don't so I don't know I mean, so it was definitely something that was discussed when this change happened that you know you know craft brewers who are local who are employing people in the community and all of that stuff and all the the, the you know the idea is the the profits were going to Canadians who were then you know buying right. Canadian products or whatever right. that that was part of the argument but I don't know I haven't seen this element of it being a um being a component of what the government is is doing. What do you think will happen to the beer store if this isn't renewed? Because this all has to do with whether you can buy 12s or 24s, yeah. which gives, obviously, the beer store an advantage. So if they take that away, can the beer store not survive still by doing what it's doing? It could. And, and part of it is whether the breweries care to do it. I mean, if you end up with more supermarkets handling the products and being willing to handle, you know, bigger cases of it. And I know I've been in Quebec where some of the big box stores have like 36 cases of 36ers, I guess you might call them yeah, and things yeah. like that. So maybe that's where they will go. Um, they, I mean, they still have the bricks and mortar and they still have the staff to handle this. So it could be that they become, that they, they are still competitive, right? Mm. But the brewers might not want to because maybe it's not worth their while if someone else will handle that side of the business, right? If, if there are, and I'm sure there's a hunger for some retailers to be specialized retailers of this um, and to, to pick up the slack. It is a weird situation we have in Ontario. I don't know anywhere else that has this sort of beer store separate from liquor stores and other vendors. So it may be that this relic of the immediate post-prohibition will just disappear because the, the, the owners themselves don't see it as worth their while. Only got a bit of time left, Dan. So where does that leave the LCBO? Why the beer store, this discussion, not the LCBO? Obviously, the LCBO is run by the government of Ontario, but how does that change the role there? Yeah, well, that is a that is a big question. I mean, when we look at, at the ways that a liquor distribution has changed across the country, most provinces still have a liquor control board of some kind. The exception, to my knowledge, the only exception is Alberta, um, where it's completely um, privatized. Uh, so it would leave the LCBO in the situation where it does the does the government want to dismantle the LCBO as a vendor of spirits, which is the thing that still I, a lot of people, I think, would be concerned about opening up to uh, retail, uh, you know, everyday retailers for reasons that we can talk about another time. Or would the LCBO just go back to being the distribu- distributor to other retailers, which is what mm-hmm. we've seen. I think in Alberta, that's what's happened. In BC, they have sort of parallel private public stores that that kind of compete and don't compete. And there's different things in different uh, industries. And in Quebec, of course, the... Um, the 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 liquor store is pretty much just spirits and wine. I think yeah. mostly spirits. Dan Malik with us, Associate Professor, Department of Health Sciences, Director of the Center for Canadian Studies at Brock University. The debate over the debate over the beer store continues and trying to decode it all. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. 
You as well. Scott, cheers. Uh, The headline reads, defense minister says, plan in talks for significant military investments. Uh, It wasn't that long ago we were just hearing of cuts to the defense department, and yet we're hearing uh, that we're purchasing planes. So how can you speak out of both sides of your mouth? Uh, Defense Minister Bill Blair says he's committed to pushing for increased investment in the Canadian Armed Forces after two top commanders sounded the alarm recently on operational readiness and whether they uh, can commit to uh, the projects that they've already committed to. Let's bring in Richard Schmuka, a a senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, expertise in Canadian and American foreign and defense policy, and here now. Richard, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Hope things are well with you. So, Richard, which way is it here? Because on one hand, we're hearing that there's cuts coming. Anita Anand had said that, and virtually to all departments, including defense. Uh, We're hearing military officials say, "We, we just don't have... Uh, 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 enough money to to do the basic things here and yet on the other hand we're talking about buying planes so how how are we cutting back and yet still buying stuff or are we well there's the immediate cutbacks that all the departments are going through that was laid out by uh mr anand uh and defense is one of the bigger sort of tickets it's a, it's a large easy target for various governments it's not the first time it's happened uh, but there's a longer term plan for the acquisition of military equipment and increasing the forces uh, to some degree. And that's was supposed to be laid out in a white paper that was supposed to be put out sometime early or sorry, late last year, early this year. But that got scuppered. And then Anand, who was at the time, she was the uh, Minister of National Defense. She was moved over to Treasury Board. And some of the reporting suggested that there was pushback from her other cabinet colleagues that uh, they didn't like how unaffordable the plan was. So we've been waiting for a new uh, white paper. The last one was in 2017. Uh, and we think, I mean, it's not clear exactly what Blair is, uh, is, is talking about today, but it, it seems pretty likely he's talking about the, uh, what, what was supposed to be in that white paper that was supposed to come out. And that would have outlined a pretty significant uh, funding increase regardless. So are there two different uh, discussions here, Richard, the cuts and then the equipment that was already committed to? Kind of. The cuts right now were, they're not programmed in. They were never sort of highlighted in previous sort of, even in the 2017 um, white paper, which had a pretty substantial funding outlay, right? So they weren't outlined there. So these are new cuts that were kind of agreed to over the summer in order to uh, improve the fiscal picture for the country. And you saw that uh, in the fall economic statement that came out uh, in the past couple of days or last week here. So it is it is separate to some degree. It's, it's not a great way to run a department, that's for sure. Uh, if you think about any sort of program, like a large defense procurement program, any uncertainty of funding, when if you're trying to cut something that's already has money programmed in, it usually results in cost overruns over the long term. Like it seems like you're saving money at the front end, but in reality, you're actually losing money because it's going to cost more over time, right? Uh, and so it's not a great way to run a department, but the government had its idea that it wanted to have a sort of bring the fiscal books better into a better order and defense kind of took the brunt of it. But we still need to actually rejuvenate the forces given how old law the equipment is and uh, a lot of the sort of training and stuff like that is required to make it a more modern force. That has to still happen. And so that's what Blair is talking about today. In your opinion, is this about improving the military or changing the messaging? 
Uh, it's probably a bit of both. Uh, certainly, a lot of this, a lot of the equipment needs to be updated. Uh, probably the biggest two ticket items that you can think about is NORAD modernization, the radars and uh, command and control systems that are used to defend the North. That's a pretty critical one. They've already announced five billion dollars over the next six years, but it's going to be significantly more of that over the next 20 years. Uh, the other one is submarines. Uh, the submarines that we have that we bought from the UK in the in the 1990s, those really need replacements within the next 10 years here. And uh, that's going to be a pretty big ticket item. So they can't delay on these things. These are, these are not issues that are, these are not systems that you can just kind of keep pushing back. They need a replacement program on the books to sort of get going and, and, get the process you know, started in order to deliver within the timeframe uh, that he's got to announce that in the next year or so, especially for the submarines. So that's going to come out regardless. But I think especially given how badly the message has come out from various commanders, as you uh, noted, uh, the uh, commander of the Navy top, she, she, he's, he's gone out and said just how poor the state and uh, Navy is those he needs to change the message message to because it's affecting morale it's affecting their the perception of the armed forces among the public uh we've often heard uh canada not contributing enough to nato uh, the prime minister uh, heard saying we have no intention of doing this what's the difference between that discussion and this discussion on equipment and whether we even have enough to do what we're doing uh, there isn't any. I mean, it's it's the same discussion. It, there's yeah. no way. Uh, there's no way for them to rate to ignore the the sort of equipment shortfalls, the personnel shortfalls, and and whatnot. And, and you know that it, it's pretty clear that our allies, especially in the United States, they are they're quite unhappy with the situation. So you can't really sort of, you know, on one hand, sort of have these cutbacks, which did not go over well, uh, having some sort of discussions with with colleagues across across the Atlantic and, and down south. It, it, they didn't play very well at all. And, and so there needs to be a there needs to be sort of a reset. And I think that's partly why Blair came out today or today about uh, to talk about sort of the potential for our defense spending increases, because, again, not just the money amount, but the sort of. Canada's just not showing up to a lot of sort of critical missions. And, and they look at the planning of what Canada can bring if there's, a, if there's an emergency. It's very, very little. Because, again, as, as, the, as the head of the Navy said, it's, we're, we're in a pretty dire state. And, and that needs to be addressed within the next decade or so. Have the equipment shortfalls just uh, been amplified under the lack of funding? I mean, you know, it's kind of like you, you got a problem before COVID, you got more of a problem after COVID. Is it the same sort of thing here in that now we've got all of these big purchases to make in a system that is already underfunded? Uh, the bigger issue, I would say, is, is probably over deployment. Uh, and also the, the equipment, as it gets older, it requires more maintenance and, and sort mm -hmm. of uh, TLC to keep them going, right? So if you think about a it's it's just like a car in some ways, right? As you get past you know two hundred thousand kilometers uh, on your mileage, it really starts to up. You know, you see things break more easily and whatnot. So and it's similar to the military cases, but a lot of these systems are 30, 40, 50 years old in some cases. That the requirements on some of this is ten times what they were at the start of their service. That's true for the Halifax frigates now. So as a result, the cost is going up to just operate the equipment, no matter what we're doing with it. But we're also deploying them more. Like you think about us increasing our sort of presence mm -hmm. in Latvia in the coming years here. Uh, we're basically going to double the amount of troops that we deploy and put some heavy equipment there. 
uh, that's going to cost a lot more as well. So even if the funding has gone up, but that's also because the maintenance has gone up dramatically because we are deploying just as much or even more with older and older equipment. So it's a problem, right? Uh, overall, if we had newer equipment, it may not cost as much hmm. to operate as, as we do today. But again, you know, with frigates that are now 30 years old or 20, 20 to 30 years old, it's, it's, it's becoming a real issue. So there's a lot of payments coming due at once. Absolutely. Uh, so you're, you're trying to keep yourself operation relevant with this old equipment, but at the same time, you have to buy the new equipment. New equipment's coming along, so we're yeah. looking at the uh, the replacement of the Halifax class, for example, the CSC. Uh, that you're going to see the coming up after the six o'clock news, the Scott Radley show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Here is yeah, he is here now. Scott, I hope you're doing well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very good, well. Good now job that on the uh, good job on the tree of hope, by the way, and the lighting and the uh, staying dry. Apparently, it was a little <laughs> moist out there. It was a little moist. Uh, the first two hours were kind of wet, but uh, by the time we got ready to light the tree and such, uh, everything had calmed down. So yeah, I got a good turnout. It was uh, fun and hard to believe that here we are again, another another uh, Christmas tree of hope lit, and another campaign started. And of course, all the details at 900chml.com on how you can help the kids. What I'm really happy about is that somebody finally found that kangaroo and it was uh, some really uh, hard hitting investigation from some police officers that actually found the kangaroo and who would have thunk if you want to catch a kangaroo you know what you do you grab it by the tail no thanks yeah aren't like the tail will hold up the entire kangaroo yeah, those imagine tails getting whacked are, in the head with that thing. Yeah, those tails, you don't want to be, uh, I'm thinking like crocodiles and kangaroos and, yeah. uh, and like, I don't know. I don't know what other animals have tails you don't want to be in the way of, but there's a number of them. But I this, think, yeah. you know, I could see somebody grabbing a hold of the tail and then, you know, just like a cartoon, the, the, the kangaroo starts whack, 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 flopping the tail around, the body's flying all over the place. I mean, I, you know, how, I, I'm not how? sure I would have taken that, that, that technique. I just don't know, Scott, that on my bingo card for 2023, I had kangaroo found in Oshawa anywhere on there. That is true. Or hits a policeman for that, uh, for that matter. But I found it fascinating that, you know, cause you wonder, well, how did the kangaroo get out? And it looked like the kangaroo was being transferred to Quebec, uh, to perhaps a lesser, uh, you know, a medium secure facility i'm not sure he was being <laughs> oh, transferred that's, that's cold but <laughs> he's being transferred to quebec and then somebody lets him out to stretch his legs so i would say okay you know you want to let the dog out uh you're going on a road trip you got him on the leash there you're getting some gas go take him over to the tree there stretch his legs but a kangaroo i'm thinking oh, i don't know if i want to go there you know, the other part is that's so funny about this. And when I say funny, it's probably not funny to the officer that was involved, but the, the, the police say that one of their officers was punched in the face. And I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking like, when you go to fill out your, you know, your forms, because yeah. why you have to be off work, your insurance, your tax. insurance forms, <laughs> and you write punched in the face by kangaroo, how many times yeah. that huh? gets sent back to you is like, okay, try again. Now, what's the real reason you're off? Th this, this reminds me, Scott, in a completely, just that, not anything to do with the kangaroo, but many years ago, um, Jeff Joslin, who uh, runs Joslin's gym now up on the, on concession, yeah. he was making his UFC right. debut. He was fighting down in San Diego. 
in the UFC. And so Barry Gray, a photographer from the paper, and I went down to San Diego. And someone said, there's a steakhouse there that if you get a chance, you got to go to this steakhouse. It's fantastic and it's not very expensive. It's great. It's in the gas lamp district. So we went. And when we tried to file our paperwork when we got home, we got it sent back either twice or three times, I can't remember, because the place was called the Strip Club. Ah. And it had, it had no naked women. It was strip as in strip steak. Strip steak, yeah. But we kept filing it and they kept sending it back going, we don't cover those kinds of things. And I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you put down punched in the face by a kangaroo, now off for six weeks. <laughs> they are sending that back again and again until someone can finally call them and say, no, no, it's legit. That's what happened. So did you get a lap dance with your steak? There were no, it was a delicious steakhouse. You made your own. They brought out the steak and they had like grills in four corners with all the sauces and spices. Oh my. And you would go and make your own steak. It was a very social thing and it was terrific. But no, there were, there was nothing to do with the, the name and making it worse. I thought, oh, I'll pick up a business card. So I attach a business card. What does the business card have as its logo is like a woman on a pole, which had nothing to do with anything. And it was like, come on, really? You're killing me here. But yes, it was, uh, there was nothing. Are you sure that this, this establishment started as a steakhouse? Well, maybe they just kind of switched midweek when, you know, maybe business it went the other got way. Off. Maybe it started as something else and someone then said, you know, you make delicious steaks here. And they just said, well, let's get rid of the poles and just go with the steak. We don't need strippers. We've got great food. Uh, maybe that's the case. Uh, but there were no, no scantily clad women when I was there. Let me tell you that. That was, uh, I, 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 there were none. I, I have nothing else to say about that. There were none. Exactly. He's trilled, He's still trying to sell this story, despite it we, being absolutely impossible to no, believe. No, no. We finally did get it covered, but we had to... We, I can't remember. Nice choice of words there, too, buddy. No, Getting I, it covered. Well, I had. I think I had to at the time, if I recall, put down the like the link or something, or finally the online web link, so they could go and look and see what the place was. But yes, yes. I, I, but it all comes back to the kangaroo. I, I find this just... I, I'm pretty sure that if you're a police police officer training at the Ontario Police College and you go through all the work and you've worked for 30 years on the force doing everything. The one thing you never thought in Ontario. I didn't, get to, I didn't learn how to defend myself against a kangaroo. There was no anti-kangaroo training in your, <laughs> in your police work. And so, but you know what, this guy will, or I don't know if it's a guy, I assume it's a male police officer because I think they said him, but regardless, what it a It was story. a female raccoon, not that that matters. You know, what, a, what a story that you're going to be able to tell though later on. I was the guy who had to arrest a kangaroo. It's like the guy you had on uh, when the Beatles played at the rooftop. Remember the cop that yes. came up to you had that guy. So we, you got to you have you have to go after this. It's got you written all over it. Yeah, especially with the especially with a strip club story. Hey, all right. driving home through that area one time from the cottage, we drove past a woman who was playing a didgeridoo in her car. It's the, maybe it's like an Australian area of this country. I'm not sure. I don't know what the heck you just said. Do you All know right, what a didgeridoo but it's time to... is? One no, of those big I... wooden, like, like it's, if you hear the beginning of Survivor, that sound that it makes, the, the oh. theme song is a didgeridoo. She had this giant wooden instrument that she was playing in her car. I thought Very we were all about to get fired. I wasn't sure what the heck it was. All <laughs> right. Christmas season. No one's uh, going to fire. <laughs> I hope. Touch wood. Uh, Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Thank you. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer.
to have the last word. This last word from Noel. Is it still a Christmas tree if all the ornaments are from Nightmare Before Christmas? Is that also a sign I have issues of letting go? Oh.